but you do get reevaluated. They double your evaluation, and your insurance company has to raise rates because it's worth more now. Well, we didn't get it. We didn't get a reevaluation by the taxing authority, but I'm wondering how long will it be before the taxing authority uses the insurance? Um, you it know, works because both ways. right, they sit here and they act like, well, these are private companies. We we could never possibly access any information regarding the insurance company and what they're insuring your house for. Well, that's not true. I mean, I know these insurance companies are under the gun to pay for everything from A to Z in healthcare and so forth. And, you know, they bought this thing from the government that said, you know, well, we're going to take care of it and you guys get to come along for the ride. I don't know what the insurance industry could have possibly been thinking because do they honestly believe that the government is going to say, well, you know, Shazam, we we got all that now. You guys don't have to worry about those expenses at all. I mean, so either they were blindsided or stupefied or just dumb or thought, well, you're going to make everybody buy insurance. That's going to be great. And now they're sitting here looking. And the whole thing of it is, Russell, the costs are definitely going up. There's no doubt about it. You know, you and I have had this discussion while the rest of the country is, you know, all Google-eyed about the economy. Um, I know what it's costing for things. And I'm not seeing an economy that's producing – greater goods at a reduced cost, I'm seeing an economy that is is increasing to co- in, increasing costs more and more to the consumer. And so I see I see this whole thing as the insurance industry wanting to see how much they can actually, you know, uh do this now. So they're calling it replacement costs. And I, I, I said who cares about replacement costs? You're you're buying insurance to to give you a break. You know, it used to be they insured for the value of a mortgage. You know, that was the primary thing is that, well, we're going to cover the mortgage. Well, now the insurance company is saying squat to the mortgage because if I'm going to get a house back or, you know, if if somebody's going to not pay the mortgage and the house is going to go into disarray, and uh, I'm going to have a bank come after me for some kind of, you know, uh, settlement on the insurance that's being paid through the the mortgage payment, you know, they're going to, you know, they feel like they want more money so that they can cover replacement costs because it, it you know, what you might have built for one hundred dollars or $200,000, you can't build today for, you know, for double that. And so they're coming out to everybody reevaluating, and they're going to hit you with the higher premium. So how long will it be before the taxing authority, you know, utilizes what the insurance company is utilizing, and says, "Well, we can't, we can't any longer accept an assessment of two hundred thousand dollars on your house because that's not the." 
cost of that house to replace it. So we're going to have to have the value of the house to be replaced as our basis for the tax, uh, for the you know for the basis of the tax. So now, now you'd be taxed, you know, on four hundred and fifty thousand dollars on your home because, you know, if we're going to keep that taxing value in the system, and we're going to expect to rely on that same evaluation or at least the money from the evaluation, we have to keep the valuation up in pace with the actual cost of replacement. Uh, how long? How long is it going to be before they're going to they're going to be doing that? Oh, Doug. I I know it. How long, how long is it going to be before you can't pay your taxes? You know, it isn't going to be very long because you didn't make that excess to spend. You didn't keep up with inflation. With your money scheme, and I don't care what the job is, it's not keeping up with inflation. <laughs> well, my job sure isn't. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's welcome uh, let's welcome a few people to the to the fellowship. Good evening, uh, Illinois. Good evening, Massachusetts. Good evening. Hey. I was just discussing that that uh, we got an insurance reevaluation, and the insurance reevaluation doubled uh, the well, nearly tripled the premium from six hundred and eighty three dollars to two thousand and eighty seven. Wow, annually. And it's all on it's all on the basis that it's it's replacement cost. So, if you have one hundred and fifty to if you have one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollar house, um, apparently uh, now on the uh, on what it will take to replace that house today, we're going to insure you for what the replacement is, whether you need it or not, whether you want it or not. Uh, that's it. Whether you've got a debt service on it or not, it does not matter now trying to find an insurance company that will still just insure you for what it is that you're willing to buy is as hard as it is to find health insurance that's willing to pay you for what it is or willing to insure you for what you are willing to buy. So, um, you got a mortgage and I asked, what's that? You got a mortgage on it? No. Go self-insured. Well, I know, and, and you know, and this is the thing is that you know the idea of insurance. We've had discussions about it before, and it isn't something that uh, you know I've said before. Insurance does God have a prohibition against insurance? Well, just think about it. If we decide to pool our resources together with a hundred people to. Uh, share the loss in the event of a calamity in our community. That's not an unbiblical principle. So to do this on the basis that you want to minimize risk and loss, 
and cost and expense for the very purpose of the increased cost and expense from fiat currency and everything else, um, then, you know, it, it's something that I have thought long and hard about and have, have made determinations in other areas to self-insure, absolutely. In fact, you know, we've done renovations on property not insured them for four or five years. Before then, we felt like we had enough invested that we would, you know, like to uh, protect ourselves in the event of, uh, you know, of a natural disaster or calamity uh, because of the cost of redoing things is obviously going up. So, the insurance companies have obviously decided that it's time for them to start doing it. So what's it going to do? It's going to drive more of us out into self-insuring when we no longer have financing and so forth. And for those that have done as we have done, which is to stay out of the debt system and to stay away from the participation with usurious programs and so forth, why we're not any better off as a result now uh, because um, if we try to uh, cover those losses which are increasing exponentially against what they would be if we had a stable dollar and a stable issue of currency and did not have the inflationary spikes that occur with this fiat currency, you know, that, as I say, has been my one reason to, uh, to participate with an insurance program as it pertains to something that, like a home that has, you know, no debt service or anything that, that the mortgage is what has to be covered. Because the insurance company used to, <clears throat> you know, insure you for at least the face value of the mortgage. Well, now that's not enough. That's not good enough. And um, so they're going to come at it uh, in whatever way they can. So I'm faced with trying to, once again, either decide and make a determination to fully self-insure, um, or do I want to continue to see if I can find somebody that will at least insure for a certain portion. And there's no doubt I've calculated this cost, you know, even at, even at an average of $400 over the past 20 years, uh, I've still spent $8,000, you know. And um, is that $8,000, you know, gone? Yes, it is. However, um, all it would take would be, you know, a storm like we had about a month ago to have actually hit, you know, my particular property, and, and the result would have, would have been like many other homes in the area. So by the blessing and the grace of God, we become spared. And so if it's his call to us to say, hey, I got you covered, and uh, don't sweat it, then, you know, that's exactly where the, where the tipping point's going to be. So, uh, I, you know, as I said. Have you, I, have you seen what your policy says about roof damage? Uh, yeah, our, our <laughs> yeah, I, different parts of the country apparently do different, different things. Um, what I've got is a warranty I've on the roof. Oh, I got a feedback there. I don't know where that came from. But what I've got is a roof policy. 
I have a warranty through the roofing company. So if anything happens to the roof in terms of, of uh, natural disaster or um, any workmanship failure and, and so forth, the, the roof is being replaced through that. So a lot of roofing companies are now doing that in order to, you know, uh, strengthen the business uh, and and get them uh, better deals and so forth through the manufacturers of the products and stuff. So, yeah, but as far as our particular policy on the roof, it tells us that they will not cover uh, any asphalt, uh, for example, an asphalt roof. They will not cover the roof for any any you know particular issue with the 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 roofing material itself they'll cover us only if there's a wind damage and water infiltration actually occurred that that got other things wet so um but they won't even cover you for the roof being torn off in a windstorm because the shingles are supposed to be rated for you know 60 mile an hour winds stuff like that. So, yeah, they don't they don't want to pay. There's no doubt about that. I'd like to tell you what you guys do to me. You, uh, you sounded you sounded like you were in good spirits when you got on the phone, not. And um I'm sure that I've just I'm sure that I just made that much better, didn't I? <laughs> yes. Proverbs 27 and 17. We heard it many times. Did we understand it? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So did you know sharpen means incite and encourage, figuratively speaking? Amen. I never knew that. I never knew that. I always yep. thought it meant to sharpen <laughs> and and also in old English it comes from a word uh, which meant brave and bold. Old Saxon "huat" meant sharp. Uh, so I'm being incited and I'm being uh, encouraged at the same time. But let me read on. He who tends the fig tree will eat its fruit. And he who cares for his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. Now, now here's something. Here's something else. I, I, I do not know. Hold on a minute. I got my 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 kids are riled up. Sheol and Abat Abaddon are never satisfied. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, Abaddon? Now there's a word I'm not familiar with. And so literally, you could translate this verse 20 as death and destruction are never satisfied. And you would be saying a very accurate statement. And just the curiosity in me, I know heals the place of death and and so I just have to go chase that word and and then it takes you to Hades and then it says the god of the dead in Greek mythology so 
Is it a mythology, a lie? Or is it It not? would Huh? Yeah, it it, it 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 it's a myth. <laughs> So it's an untruth, isn't it? It's an untruth. So yeah, that's why they call it mythology. That's why they okay, call so it mythology. This God, this, God, this God of the dead named Hades is where we translate the word shield. And we go from shield to hell. Now something's not vibing right in my brain. I think some of the, um, the the different Bibles I've read say, uses that as the grave is not Yeah, satisfying. that's what it is. Uh, yeah, it's the place of death. I mean, it all seems to wander, uh, rotate around death and dying. And Jesus said what? He said, I came so that you might have life eternal. Yeah, so have a opportunity. That's the opposite of those words, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Life abundant. Well, you got to well, send the bad people someplace. You don't want them mucking up the good spots. Well, how about if they just die? That's it the whole key. Yeah. Our Savior Rose, they don't, they don't get that. No, they don't get eternal life. And I I I don't know, I just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna interfere with tonight's message. I just wanted to you started sharpening my iron and then I was thinking about this, so uh there you have it. Doug's got problems. Russell's got problems. I bet even Rich has some problems. And by, yeah. by problems... No, I'm married to the most wonderful girl in the world. I don't have any problems. Well, I don't know how you can when Russell and I are both married to the best women in the world. So how's that? <laughs> you know, and and not to mention... Yeah, but, I, but I said it first. Not to mention that Isaac's got one of the best girls in the world, don't you, Isaac? Uh, yeah, that's true. I don't, yeah, I don't know how well, that works out. My wife Say what, Isaac? Feeding me. I bro. said I, I don't know how that all worked out. We all got pretty lucky, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you. Um, well, at any rate, as Russell said, uh, as far as tonight... A gift from uh, God more precious than rubies and pearls. Amen. So, um, uh, Rich, um, you know, you talked about it being interesting last week, uh, interesting stuff, and I, I opened the door up to somebody if they wanted to bring some additional stuff. I've got some stuff ready here, and um, maybe what I'll do is I'll just recap quickly because um, it's already uh, at the top of the hour. And uh, Well, I won't recap. Rich, do you have some stuff that you did some study for and brought to us? I'm just guessing you might have. Did you or no? Well, I looked up uh, the America Stonehenge, which is in Salem, New Hampshire, that's probably about 
75 miles away from me, maybe yeah. 80 miles. And they say the site is 4,000 years old. And they found Ogham script, Phoenician, and Iberian phonetic language or something like that. And so, uh, and I looked at their website and they said, and um, they can, they still use the Stonehenge, you know, it's it's all lined up with the, um, the Equinox and, um, and they still have, you know, meetings a couple of times a year there when, um, when the sun is just hitting the tip of one of the, the stones. And, uh, but it's uh, quite the place. It's worth worth the trip to uh, take a look at it. Got um, three rock mounds, and um, one of them is on the inside, and it's got a well. It's got a sacrificial table outside above it, which is big enough for a person. And they had troughs running through. It looks like maybe they were using blood sacrifice around the edges and um on the inside supposedly it acts like a megaphone so one of the priests or his assistants were on the inside and um making incantations or or imitating the gods or whatever it was they're not really sure but but the acoustics of it still work so when they talk from the inside of the mound it megaphones out to where the people were worshiping or whatever they were doing. So it's a pretty interesting area. Yeah. It's on, um, it's on a river, too. It's on. I think it's on the Merrimack River. I could be wrong about that, but I... But they used to... Um, I think it was rich in polished granite and... That that type of uh, very pretty stones, big black stones. Um, so yeah, like someone was here before Columbus. Oh yeah. yeah, most most definitely. Go ahead, Isaac. Uh, nope, I didn't say anything. Oh okay. Yeah, I when you mentioned that last week, I went ahead and pulled up the the site. You know, um, now that's been made a historic uh, site, and I would venture to say that it's been made a historic site because I think, as I recall, uh, literature of old is that that was predominantly figured that it was, you know, it was the work of of other peoples um, that all right um, I have uh, had to mute that participant so uh, we'll see um, I'm not sure um, I know that I've got a new participant here, uh, uh, and I don't know. Um, so uh, um, he can 
whoever it is, they can open up the chat if they want. They can make an introduction there. But I've got to mute it because it's causing a havoc on the line. But anyhow, um, yeah, you know, uh, again, last week, you know, uh, if I if I didn't convey it as good as I could, I, I apologize. Last week, we didn't get the record button started. And um, but I did go on and um, <clears throat> and make sure that I basically recorded uh, the notes as I gave it and um, just a second, everybody. All right, uh, all right. I've taken care of that one. So um, I don't know what that was, but uh, we got it out of the way. Did everybody hear me yet? Now? Yeah. I yeah. Can yeah. All right. Good. good. Yeah, yeah. muted out totally a couple times, but it's good. All right. <clears throat> so anyhow, um, um, I had to dump that one out. So if they're still listening, they can uh, uh, give us an email and. Let us know what uh, what they're doing, and then we'll try to make sure that we get the issue resolved on their connection. But anyhow, um, so I, I recapped basically what we did and got it recorded, got it up on the archive so that those that would want to hear uh, that fellowship from last week, unfortunately, they don't have the benefit of your guys' input. And as I say, I apologize for that. But I started the recording up on this uh, real early here as Russell and I got into conversation right off the bat. So we are recording and, and it's going out. But um, so I did take a look at that you know website and stuff because we have the ability to do that in lieu of travel, Rich, and it's really nice and uh, it's great to do that. And as I say, I think that they basically you know, have made that, uh, you know, because the Stonehenge uh, for years, I'm, I'm not sure that they really fully had made uh, <clears throat> complete decisions on who's actually done it. And I think that they, you know, always wanted to try to believe that it was done by <clears throat> individuals that were far superior in intelligence and so forth and far superior and came from a different era of time to support the whole evolutionary theories and different concepts of the evolutionary theory and so forth. So, um, But this Lost Luna Stone that we touched on last week, that's never even received hardly much mention, much less the light of day as, as, as making it a, <clears throat> a true historic site. And um, so for the notes and stuff that I've got, I won't recap because I don't want to take up the time, but... Um, Rich alluded to and said, I guess there were people on the North American continent before Columbus. And there is yeah. no doubt about it. No doubt about it whatsoever. Now, I have in my uh, hands here a book titled Ancient American Inscriptions. Um, this is by William McGlone, G-L-O-N-E, Philip Leonard, James Guthrie, Roland Gillespie, and James Whittall. 
James Whittall is somebody that I have referred to in last week's information as well. So they wrote a book, co-authored a book titled Amer Ancient American Inscriptions. And the, I got that from a local library that was getting rid of it. Um, it was marked for destruction. Copyright 1993. That's 1993. I have a book here titled Unearthing Ancient America, Frank Joseph. Uh, that title caught my attention, or the, excuse me, the author caught my attention because I thought I had another book by him. And it turns out I didn't, well, actually, while I was looking for something, I found a, a book that he authored, and I thought I had that book, and I couldn't find it on my library shelves, but I did find this book that he also authored, Frank Joseph, called Unearthing Ancient America. And this book is um, copyright uh, 2009, so we have a 93. 2009. Frank Joseph is widely known in, in the circles. All of these other four men, five men that I mentioned, are widely known in the circles. I have a book here from Frederick Haberman, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-N, titled Tracing Our Ancestors. Ancestors. Um, this is a 2000 book. And then we have Barry Fell's book, which I mentioned a number of times last week as well. America BC and um, copyright 76 for Barry Fell's book. Now Barry Fell is widely known in the circles as well. Uh, he has done remarkable work. And then I have a book here entitled Missing Links Discovered. This is by Raymond Capt, E. Ray Capt. Uh, a lot of us already know of him. He was one of those uh, biblical archaeologists who actually was instrumental in confirming so much of what many of us believed, which was the Bible, number one, and believed that God had a people that he had covenanted with that seemed to fit an entirely different description than the people that we've come to believe and know as God's chosen people called those Jews in the land of, of Israel. And as Pastor Peters used to always eloquently say, those Israelites, uh, a little emphasis on the lie aspect. Um, and so the purpose of really shedding the light about the lost Luna stone I, I guess is that several things converged, and you'll find that in last week's uh, fellowship. But as as I began to think more and more about it, it's just the things that kind of, we kind of started talk, talking about mythology. You know, exactly. a lot of a lot of where we are at is purely mythology. I mean, I am finding myself doing the same thing that happened with Isaac, and now down to Jeremiah is that. We've got a situation here where I'm trying to teach the truth amongst the host, the host of the lies and the mythology, if you will, and the disinformation. And to try to keep us all grounded in some sense of sanity 
um, it really becomes a perplexing situation because you don't know how to train the new generation to, you know, you, you, you're doing the best you can at training them and teaching them and showing them how to read between the lines, how to decipher the good from the bad, how to, you know, weed out the untruths amongst all that, that they've got coming at them as well as, you know, what, uh, you know, you're trying to teach them. So, <clears throat> so I guess the epilogue, if you will, of what I hope that these two fellowships will do is to continue to open the eyes to people who are coming to the biblical identity of the Israelites being still in existence, number one, and then open their eyes to the facts that they actually left. I, I was going to cite you something out of Ray Cap's book, and I hope that I, I, I put the thing in it where I wanted to put it in it. Um, but the point is, he he cites all of these different. Ray Capped at the back of his book, he cites uh, Professor Freeman, um, Professor Huxley, uh, Sir Nicholas, Sir Palgrave, Colonel Turner, Professor Gunther, William Camden. Um, these are all people within the, the fields and the circle of, of people who know these things uh, Sharon Turner, uh, Dr. George Moore, uh, Du Chalou, uh, The Viking Age, uh, Bruce Haney, European and other race origins, origins King James VI of Scotland, uh, uh, Dr. James Moore, George Moore in his book, The Name of God, or no, it was in, uh, it was just, uh, oh, it was in Roberts. So anyhow, he's got all these different citations of these various peoples who understood the migration of the peoples that became known as the Israelites by different names. And Ray Capt is probably one of the, the most significant individuals who brought to the attention that um, these uh, these peoples uh, of Israel that went into the Assyrian captivity left those areas, left their captivities. Some of them got out of their captivities and left the areas. Just a moment. Lose, Doug. No, I don't think so. He said he'd be right back. Yeah, no, I uh, just had to clarify. I just had to clarify that something wasn't being dropped in our our system here, and so we're we're good. But um, <clears throat> so, anyhow, uh, you know, that's one of these things is that the purpose of this is, is more than just single fold to show us a piece of history here and what Rich has done with talking about the Stonehenge and so forth is to, is to give us further tools to be able to share with people that, 
things are not as we've been told. Things are not as we've been led to believe. And not only that, is that it's doing great harm and great damage um, to us in our effective ability to do and be a part of the Great Commission that we've been under. And so um, I don't know what happened to well, Rich, but go ahead. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it all brought this up because I'm sitting here thinking to myself, <clears throat> what's the motivation for these bastards to change everything and mislead and deceive? Because you think about it, that constitutional convention, who gave them all the power to get together and throw that thing together and turn it into what we're living under now? It, it It's all a myth. Yeah, they took it. Yeah, the Federal Reserve came out today or yesterday and said we had to make some emergency adjustments. Did did any of y'all read that? They just pulled it out of their rear end and did some finagling. And when you read it, it's just babble. And Ron Paul said we're going to be in negative interest rates, whatever that means. And and yet we got a clown doing a rally. I don't remember where he was last night, and he's made everything great. He just stands up there and says, "Look what I've done! Look what I've done!" And the bad guys are coming after us, man. And I've fixed it. I'm great. Look at me. And it's good cop, bad cop. Uh, probably. Since the day George Washington took office, they've probably been playing this game. What is party politics? It's a joke. It's not. We we've all been raised up to think this America is is something god it's godly. This is godly to be a patriot and love this country. And I've even heard people teach the Constitution is sacred writings. Of course, there's stuff we don't know about. Uh, there's a plaque in El Paso, Texas, way into the 1600s, about people that came up through there. But they weren't any part of Columbus. So I guess well, you know, really- you you mentioned you mentioned you mentioned Texas there, and. In Gordon's book, um, Before Columbus, there's a record uh, of a stone in 1862, an inscription, a stone inscription found in, I think this is pronounced Paraiba, Brazil, P-A-R-A-I-B-A, Brazil. And this stone inscription was considered a fake for more than a century, simply because they didn't know what they now know. And it's all part of that whole thing that once you get the people believing a theory or get the people believing, you know, we all came from apes or we all came from, you know, uh, you know, descended from, from the low, uh, you know, the low two-cell two piece of pond scum, yeah. Um, and so 
now you know, there's a vested interest in trying to to keep the people believing along those lines. And so sometimes things are hidden for a while because you know they got to figure out how we can make it work. It's just like the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's like what are we going to find in there first? We got to find out because we need to know how it's going to alter the paradigm. And we we have to fully understand how it's going to alter that in order to you know, be able to know how we're going to deceive the people. Now, if that goes on, why is it such a stretch for us to think that it would not go on in just the smallest type thing in a local government or a, you know, or a national body politic? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, um, so as you go along so, through... So here's a story, Doug. The... Alleged mass shooter in Odessa, Texas, had a a Beto bumper sticker on his car. That's what I've been told. Now, there's a story, isn't it? Isn't that a story? You hadn't heard one word about that. Because it doesn't fit the narrative, does it? It doesn't fit the the box. That's exactly right. And And, that's the whole... This whole American story is a great idea, but all right. So reality. So this Brazilian stone inscription, it records uh-huh. the ships of it records ships of Tyre ending up there, and the Aztec language is uh, Nahatul N A H U A T L. And the name for North America is Aztlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N, Aztlan. All right. And so one thing I began to think about, and I don't, I haven't read all of these six books that I have here, but I've read parts of them. But I don't know if anybody's ever, remember the, the lost city of Atlantis or the lost, you know, land of Atlantis. Yep. And I got uh-huh. to thinking the way the way the Greeks would add uh, something when there was a silent letter, and, and I am no language expert by any stretch of the, the means. So as I got to thinking, I got to thinking, you know, is this Atlantis? Because when you look at the description of Atlantis, here's what Diodorus uh, wrote, um, and I quote, um, quote, for there lies out in the deep off Libya, meaning Africa, an island of considerable size, and situated as it is in the ocean, it is distant from Libya, a voyage of a number of days to the west. Its land is fruitful, much of it being mountainous, and not a little being a level plain of surpassing beauty, and through it flows navigable waters, end quote. Now, Plato and Solon both talked about this, this great um, empire, this, this lost empire of Atlantis. And, you know, it kind of occurred to me, I don't know if it was just mere sophistry. I don't know what they had to, um, you know, inspire the writing of it. I mean, I, I know there's several other legends and perhaps mythology that, that, that fed into it. But I got to thinking, what land is there possibly that is west of Africa 
that is considered, quote, an island of such considerable size that it is mostly mountainous and has this wonderful beauty of plains and so forth with navigable rivers, you know. And so whether South America and North America or the combination of them, um, it's just more information that, that I know that these writers are talking about and that they're sharing the information that's being found in these areas. And where, where do you connect the dots? So as I'm looking in Josephus again, and I know this part of this message is very scattered, uh, but I'll just give it to you and we'll let it land where it lands. But Josephus in Antiquities chapter 5 records this. Um, quote, the practices of people when they had no similar or difficult sounding dialect they would drop that sound or replace it with what is familiar. To Greeks, it is likely T-I-S. And Azatlan, Azatlan, A-Z, the, the Greeks did not have anything for the Z, apparently, is something I also read. I don't remember which one I wrote it in. So that's how it got changed to Atlantis instead of Azlan. Uh, Aslant, which is what the Nahutal uh, uh, called it, uh, America. And so if you take the Z out, which the Greeks were wont to not use, and you add the TIS, it now becomes Atlantis. So you have Plato and Solon, both Greeks, referring to this land called Atlantis. And so what is the possibility that over a millennium BC, during the time, as we spoke about, of the ships of Solomon, and how we proved in last week's message that those ships only had two routes in which they could have possibly gone, and if they were getting gold from Ophir, which is known, a landmass that was known, then the only way they would get gold from Ophir, Ophir would have been to have made the round-the-world trip. And it, it, veri it is verified in significant degree by the number of years that transpired on these voyages. So then I'm sitting here falling into this stuff about Atlantis and... So there's nothing that I have to prove that it was done this way or anything else, only that Atlantis is described by Plato and so on. But this is something also about that uh, Francis Bacon uh, pontificated about. And he said that there was an island nation with a politically uh, and scientifically advanced civilization, and he called it Atlantis. And so think about this. Here we have, and it is proven in these five books alone that I have here, it is proven that Israelite tribes migrated with ships into the North American continent. And I have reason to believe that they were operating in some measures and some degrees with a beautiful system of law and a beautiful system of uh, uh, 
with with scientific advancements and so forth. And so I'm not so uh, believing that this lost city or lost land of Atlantis was nothing more than this beautiful land of the North American continent who our people had migrated to centuries before, millenniums before, and um, were in fact enjoying the fruits and the benefits. Now, I have one other work that I don't have with me, so I can't give you any of the quotes out of it, but it's a book titled, He Walked the Americas. Now, we got this book from a lady who was of likely Indian heritage, and she was a believer in Christ, the Redeemer of Jacob Israel. And she gave us this book, and in this book, He Walked the Americas, it's a compendium of stories from Indian tribes throughout South America and into the North Americas about this individual who walked the Americas. And these stories are legends that have been written about by these tribes carried on and kept recorded and carried on you know, for centuries. Now, I'm trying to remember because I did read the book. It wasn't a hard read, and, and it was probably only 150 pages or something. But um, I did read through it, and many of the, the accounts I seem to recall were somewhere in that, I don't know if, I, if I'm remembering exactly correct, but I was going to say from about the six or seven hundreds um, on up through, you know, the modern day or, you know, 12th, 15th, 16th centuries, most of these things were recorded. Now, I could be wrong, but it was at least over five or six century period and maybe even up to about eight. So if I'm shady on, you know, all of it, uh, but I would say at least from eight to 14, eight to 15, somewhere in there. So, so basically, the, the the way that the stories are written is they're basically conveying that Christ himself walked the Americas and was preparing the way for the great migration of Israelites. Now, we can take it for what it is. I'm just putting it out there as just one more thing that I came across in the last six or seven years, and I think that book was introduced to us. He walked the Americas about oh, I've got to believe it's at least five, six years ago for sure. But now Plato also has something that I found that he quoted, and this is what he said, quote, the sea became a barrier of unpassable mud. And I asked myself a question right here. Was that real? Is it possible that God caused such a phenomenon so that it would halt activity going on on the North American continent and this is what Plato is writing about, is that as this lost Atlantis, is, is there more to the story? Is there more that could be gleaned from some of the historical records as we now are finding many of these authors have been trying to uncover in the circles and in the fields in which they have? 
but for centuries these guys have been discounted, many of them have been discounted in various ways, and many of these archaeological finds on the North American continent have been discounted as frauds, fakes, and so forth, and even the people who have wrote about them, the studies that they've done and the books they've been done, written have been attempted to be discredited by whom? By the teachers, by the professors, and so forth. But now it appears there really is no way for them to continue the charade because it has truly gotten that much more visibility by others delving into the information and digging up. And some of these writers, like Barry Fell, and some of these more recent writers, uh, Frederick Haberman and so forth, they've got excellent credentials about who they are and the kind of work that they do. Is, um, so, you know, that was just a, an, another part of it um, that, you know, began to just kind of flow through my mind thinking about so many of these things that we've been misled about. And one of the big obstacles I, I read in one of these books, and I did not bookmark, well, maybe I did. I might have it here. I see two bookmarks in this one here, Ancient American Inscriptions. Um, there was something that was written, um, and, and I bookmarked, I'll, I'll look at that quick and see if that's where I want to go. Okay, yeah, the other bookmark was just about the, lo uh, the lost moon of stone. So I'm going to go with this bookmark that I had as being the one. Yeah, here's what's written, quote, one final question. This is from page 336 in Ancient American Inscriptions, Plow Marks or History, by those five authors. One final, so in other words, what these five authors did was they basically took an approach to try to say to the candid world of those in their profession, look, here's what we've done. Here's what we have. We're encouraging all of you to stop, drop, and roll, if you will, to take a look and to take and an, an analyze it. And we've opened the door to all of the analytical aspects and so forth. And so they've really written a book to their profession. So this is what it reads on page 336. One final question, quote, constantly re rears its head. If we, if as we believe, let me start again. I can do better than that. One final question constantly rears its head. If, as we believe, valid old world inscriptions are probably present in this country, who made them? Question mark. This question was analyzed in some detail in our first book and will only be briefly discussed here. For most of the inscriptions, their obvious appearance of age, dating tests eliminate the possibility of recent hoaxes. Similarly, the inane contention that the ogums are plow marks, except for one instance, is not worth discussing. Valid inscriptions, as we believe some are, require the input of old world people, either to teach others how to write or how to do the, or to do the writing themselves. Some of the materials, such as the Rochester Creek glyphs of chapter 12, 
show a blend of cultures and may well have been made by those few generations removed, those a few generations removed from the old world. Others, such as the Colorado Ogums, would seem to have been written by people who were much nearer to, the, to being first-generation visitors. None of this is as clear at this time as we would like, but old world people's presence in this hemisphere is necessary to explain the inscriptions. And the presence of these people is strongly suggested at the sites themselves. At least, this is sufficiently well established that further evidence should be sought by archaeologists and others. Were old world people in Colorado? To us, this is the best present explanation for what has been found there. And we conclude on the basis of that data that they probably were. Other reasonable observers may see this differently, but even if they reject the probability of old world presence based on the epigraphic evidence, they cannot reasonably escape the possibility of visitation to the point that they dogmatically deny it and refuse to investigate. A further point that should be made about the Colorado Ogums concerns the probable homeland of the visitors who made them. The presence of the Ogum and the inferred Celtic language call for Celtic people as the inscribers. One might easily expect they would have come from the British Isles or Gaul, but we think it more likely they were from Celtic provinces of Iberia because the syncretic religion of the Anubis caves the mixture of Ogham and Libyan writing is more expectable in Iberia. This mixed bag of alphabets can be explained by a mixed crew from Iberia where these scripts might have been used. And there's so much more, but I hope you got the flavor and the sense of how these guys wrote this book to try to say to their own industry and their own professions that it simply cannot be denied anymore. And when you read Ray Capp's book, and he shows you the migrations of these people, and he shows you the changes of the languages, Ray Capp is an archaeologist. He is a uh, MA, I don't even know what these stand for, MA, AIA, FSA. He is a credentialed archaeologist. And we were so blessed to have Ray Capp. Um, teach in so many venues who had picked up on the Israelite identity of the Germanic, Scandinavia, Celtic, and Kindred peoples that migrated to this North American continent and set up government under the authority of God until it was supplanted by this ungodly constitution which has literally oppressed and beaten down the Israelites of America, and God is hearing the voices of the cries of the people under the oppression, the things that we started out with this fellowship with tonight, and the oppression that is upon the people here, and they do not see it while they keep meddling and toying with interest rates, and economic indicators and stock market fluctuations and everything in order 
to keep the people happy and to keep the people from really knowing who the oppressors are and driving them once and for all from the, the land that God gave them to be stewards over and has commissioned them to be stewards over the entire creation. And we would do so much more good, so much more equipped would we be for the world and for the work of service, knowing and understanding the commission that we are under, under the commands of God and his direction, than we could possibly understand. And I pray, God, that we are able to get more and more of these pieces of information out. I kid you not, I spent 16 hours of my spare time recently listening to some guys talk about Satan and uh, devil people. And the reason I did it was for you guys, so that I will, I will be able to be confident when I come with the series that's coming. But in spending that much time, I said, my God, what would we be able to do with people who would stop the silliness and the disgusting stupidity of trying to just take a people that they already know and understand are a nemesis and an adversary to the God of Jacob Israel and instead infusing it with all of this crap and jargon so as to mystify people into their wide array of knowledge and understanding about how they know that these are seeds of the serpent for crying out loud. And I think, why am I wasting my time on it? I didn't mean to digress here, folks, but I'm telling you, man, when you think about what we can be doing for the kingdom and what we should be doing for the kingdom, and we've got people who understand the biblical identity, and they're miring themselves in this trash, pulling it from mystical writings of all sorts of papers and Judaic Judaism dogma crap and blending it in and folding it in to support their own theory. And that's the whole thing. These guys are lamenting their own profession and saying, we've got to stop the charade. It's time that the truth be able to get out. I'm sorry, go ahead. I'd like to read a little bit about the motivation because that is important. What motivates our enemy? So if you go to Matthew and you go to 28, I'm going to skip a lot of things, but I'm going to go to 11. Verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guards that, of course, had watched over Jesus' tomb came into the city and reported to who were the chief priests? They were the big. They were the the, the the decision makers. And these guards told these decision makers everything that had happened. 
And when they had assembled with the elders, which, again, I'm assuming this is the uh, movers and shakers, and the council, which I'm assuming is the uh, the smart people, the university people, whatever. Okay, so they assembled and they come together in their, their dark room. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say. Now, you can plug in anything you want here. Absolutely. Columbus came over here in 1692 riding on the back of a blue Chevrolet. His yeah, and you can also you can also say that 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 king of Bashan Og, you can also say that he rode on top of the Noah's Ark because that's the only way they can explain King uh, Bashan with the, this big mag, this big man Bashan and his his bedstead that was nine cubits long or whatever it was. You could say he rode in he he rode on the top of Noah's Ark in order to be available and in existence after the flood. If you want to keep the theory that the flood was worldwide. Exactly, Russell. And, and this is very important in 13, because these, this group of leadership, which has to be the world order of that time, here's the narrative. That's the same yep. thing as saying you to say, Hey, his disciples came by night and sold him away while while you guys, you sorry soldiers, were taking a cat nap. And everybody's going to buy that. And if this should come over to the governor's ear, okay, that's your politicians, we will win him over. How do they win people over? With money. And then we'll keep you out of trouble. And so on 15, this is the conclusion. And they took the money. And they did as they had been instructed. And the story is widely spread today among the you know who. All right, now let me take you back let me take you back to fourteen and let's throw another scenario out since Russell's on a roll here. Here's here's what here's what we're gonna do. If it comes to the governor's ear, we're gonna say, Mr. President, if we allow the people to know that this will happen, your dominion is over, Mr. President. Absolutely. And so we are going to, you're going to have to keep this story with us because these guards saw this and they know it and they're going to report it and the best thing we can do is to shut it down. We're going to pay them money and tell them to never speak a word about it and are you with us on it, Mr. President? Well, so, I, I guess I guess I am. He has no choice. He has no choice. If he's an ungodly, non-God-fearing individual, he has no choice. But if he is a godly individual, he says, no, I will not be complicit in the error. I will not be complicit in the in the untruth. I will extol the virtues of this God of creation, and I will tear down the bales in the land, and I will raise up godly men. 
And we read about one of the we read about one of the kings that did that. Was it uh, was it Josiah? Who was it that we just read about a month or so ago? Hezekiah. Uh, I guess it wasn't very long ago. I just don't remember his name. Yeah, I know that kind of blends together whether it's Josiah, Hezekiah, but I get your point. Yeah. So, so the, these historians, these book writers, they're all of the same ilk. It's, they hate people that are independent thought and, and are doing research, coming up with solutions to problems. Well, the thing that really struck me out of Ray Capp's book um, was again, the migrations of the people. And, and the thing that struck me that I did not know is that there were, there were Israelites in the Assyrian captivity that broke free of their captors. And as I understand it, it, it wasn't terribly hard to do. They don't mean broke free in the sense that we would think breaking free today. But because, as I've explained from my understanding of captivities and so forth, you'd be taken into the dominion of the captor, and yet you would still be, in some respects, um, you know, quartered out or however they would do it. And so it's not as if you still weren't amongst your own people and maybe a little interspersion was done here and there well, and so forth. Well, wait, Doug, you're describing us right now in America. Absolutely, that's exactly what I was going to say. And so we shouldn't find it surprising that some of these inscriptions that are over here would be of the Israelites, and we shouldn't find, we shouldn't be surprised to find that they might be interspersed with some, uh, some of what would appear to be, you know, um, uh, pagan, heathenistic, and so forth, because... Even, even right here, I was reading in Joshua chapter 9, we read about the Hivites. Those Hivites were referred to as Kilim, K-I-W-M also. Now remember, those Hivites, Joshua let live amongst the Israelites. You understand that? So our, our history is full of times in which we have uh, had other peoples living amongst us for various reasons. In the case of Joshua, he let them live, and they agreed. They were descendants of Canaan, remember. And that's uh, um, uh, 1 Chronicles 1.15 shows that, that these uh, Hivites were instrumental in leading the Israelites into Baal worship. And in Judges, uh, well, I don't want to get to that yet, but in uh, anyhow, <clears throat> regarding those Hivites that lived amongst them, as I recall, if I remember right, um, yeah, I made a note here. The biblical record reflects that Joshua allowed the Hivite or the Kilim to settle amongst themselves and be gatherers of wood and water. So we have had periods of time where allowing somebody because they did good favor um, in the case that they did with Joshua, he allowed them to live and made them servants, essentially. 
And so we also know from the biblical record that there were people who came to the Israelites because their system of justice and their system of law, while they were under God's law and while they were under godly kings and kingships. But, and so there were people that wanted to live under that, just like people want to come to America and live under this, what they believe and perceive is a great and, and wonderful nation. But they don't understand how great and wonderful it once was when we were free under the yoke of God's bondage and not the yoke of man's bondage. Since this constitution has come in, all of the ills that have plagued us in this 230-some years has been a result of that constitution. And I, what, what more can we, can we say, you know? Um, let, me, and so, let me throw a monkey wrench into this. I just found this out over the weekend. Were you guys aware that there was a Moab, Utah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, it's the gateway to massive red rock formations. Were you aware that they had uh, they had uh, these uh, great uh, holidays there? They have uh, dinosaur tracks. I mean, how how does Moab hang on? I mean, I guess it's you mean the, you mean the name or what? What do you mean? I'm wondering if it's part of the same one. You know, what was the eternal enemy of the Israelites? Moabite, maybe. Um. Well, clearly, Esau, clearly, clearly Esau. But you see, that's another thing. I, I've got a message on the on the archives here. Uh, David's Moabite great grandmother. You see, because I thought that might catch people's attention. Because um, you know, uh, that is one of the things that is used to say, well, you know, David was from a Moabite. But if they didn't even understand. But if they go back in the biblical record, then they would realize that Moab was a a geographical location. And in the geographical location is where people of Israel did dwell. And so to say that she was from Moab Uh doesn't clearly articulate she could have been called a a Moabite just like well Russell can be called a Texan. But it doesn't yeah, just, mean that he it doesn't mean that Russell's a Mexican. He's a Texan. Right. Meaning he's of the geographical location of Texas and he's an Israelite of the tribe of let's see, Russell, who are you out of? Um, Clan um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is just like uh, Jethro's wife. What everybody assumes if you're from Ethiopia, you were black. That's not necessarily true. But the reason I brought up the whole Moab thing is, is uh, these people they always seem to follow God's people around and be a thorn in their side. So maybe they sailed over here too. Yeah, I I don't know. You know, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of names uh, that are that are 
you know, uh, that have been carried here, no doubt. I mean, Ephraim, well, we've got a little town of, of, of Manasseh. We've got, I think we've got probably, uh, I don't know how many in this, in this state of, of names that are, are biblical names, but, I mean, they're, they're definitely all over. But, you know, the point is now, and I know we're at the top of the hour again, is that we've always have to consistently make a distinction. Well, the one thing that I think is a big nemesis again, and is this whole thing about Hebrew, because people when they think of Hebrew writings and so forth in Hebrew, we have been so dogmatically conditioned as a people. When you think of Hebrew, you automatically think Jew, and that is not. True, that is not correct. And so I think that we constantly have to make a distinction amongst peoples. And all too often the historians, the clergy, the educators and the like are too quick to make an assumption in lumping all, uh, you know, many peoples together while actually needing to classify them distinctly. And if you just are going to take Hebrew and say, well, that's the language of the Jews, you are missing 90% of the historical biblical record and 90% of who the Hebrew writings ref- are reflective of. Am I making sense? Mm-hmm. And so it, this error, I think, is the reason why epigraphers, linguists, most modern archaeologists and others are so reluctant to tell the real story because in doing so, you know, to tell the story really that the artifacts, the inscriptions, and everything else convey, because they're trying to constantly fit it into the conventional thinking or the conventional notions, preconceived ideas, and beliefs. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so we're, myth, we're, we're, we're like, go ahead. The myth self-perpetuates, built on the myth. Yeah. Exactly. We're like, we're like the water swirling down the drain. You see, the vortex is so strong <clears throat> of the conventional thinking and the conventional wisdom and the preconceived notions and ideas and so forth that we're just constantly sucked into the vortex, leading us only to one place. And that's where the vortex exits at. And it exits at, you know, usually not a real good place. All theses are predicated on a preceding <clears throat> thesis or set of facts. And if the facts are screwed up, you're going to have a screwed up thesis, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. Facts, you got you them confused and deceived. You know, I'm really sorry. I don't feel like I really got into very much of some additional stuff. <clears throat> Um, this particular fellowship, um, but I found myself just being drawn to the to the real, you know, to the epilogue, if you will, of of how I feel about all this and how I'm trying to convey it and relate it. And I, I don't feel that any one of you guys haven't already grasped it or don't understand it or anything else. It's purely for the posterity. It's purely for those who are going to get these archives and, you know, delve into them further 
and feel that there's you know something there that 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 at least it gives them some sense of an understanding of of what's been happening and and who they are and the whole Israelite you know truth and the Israelite biblical identity so uh, basically I'm going to flip us over to Deuteronomy chapter 32 quickly and read something that you know made me come back once again to something that is so profound in the scriptures Uh, this is in the Song of Moses, by the way, at chapter 32. And it says at verse 8, um, um, when, the most, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Oh, wow. That just brings chills to my bones. You know, I don't know where this song, I don't know that anybody's ever tried to bring this song of Moses, Moses' song here. I don't really know that I know where it begins and where it ends. I'm going to have to do some history study on that. But I got to thinking about it. You know, you want to talk about a new song? We could use this song here because this song here being sung by people, uh, that sends a message and it, it tells a story. And that's obviously why this was called Moses' song, to tell a story, a story of profound and immense um, uh, worth and value and that's that's what I've got to thinking about um, you know this nation in this past century alone or at least within this millennium in in the last two two centuries it has it has taken the flawed information and it has given millions and millions and millions of acres of land and ceded them to supposed Native Americans for reciprocity, if you will, or supposed egregious errors and so forth, reparations, if you will, um, to these, these quote-unquote Native Americans, all in stark contrast to the biblical record that we find right here in the book of Deuteronomy. But the adversaries of God, the ones who do not want you to know this truth, the ones who do not want this biblical historical record to be known, understood, and given the value that it deserves, they cannot have this be known because they are opposed to everything that this record is. That is not hard to understand, is it? Well, I don't know what you all think, but as I said, I suppose I got a little bit more on a on a preach than I did in trying to convey some more stuff out of this literature, but 
Um, I've given the names of five or six very, very good books. And if I were to make and take the notes out of these and to bring them as fellowships, um, we would have a series that would probably take us uh, to the end of the year. And uh, I think we would tire of basically knowing how badly we've been deceived and manipulated and um, how the biblical record of God has been so destroyed and destructed. And he's still working his plan. He's still working it. And it isn't always pretty, but he's doing it. And uh, sometimes it's hard to understand when we make such a mess of it how he's going to work it out. But he does. He always seems to be able to work it out. And he always knows he's he, he always knows he's got a remnant. Go ahead, Russell. I'm having trouble hearing you, Russell. It sounds like you're too far away now. Oh. I said do you mean he's like a rock? He is like a rock. All right, man. I know it's the top of the hour, and we try to get her shut down here. Um, I'll lead in some prayer, and anybody else wants to add in. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the wonderful opportunity that this technology gives us to sit and fellowship and enjoy an hour or so of time with your people, Father, those that have come to know and understand the value in your, in your ways, your will, and your word. And so, Father, I thank you for that opportunity. I thank you for the small measure that we're able to be a part of each other's lives and share in that. And as Brother Russell said at the outset, to sharpen, and that is to, to bring into focus and to teach and to share and uh, to bring greater understanding to us, if not at times new understanding. And so, Father, I just thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for the wealth of information that you've put together and into my hands. I, 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 Father, sometimes I wonder how it is that you've put these resources in my hands at the various times in which you do. And sometimes these resources aren't even, aren't even, don't even have time to look at them until sometime much later. And it just amazes me how you've continued to do that and to work in my life in that respect. And I just pray, Father, that these, that these archives continue to go out and that, that people continue to receive them and enjoy them and uh, begin to have new and greater understandings from them. And I, I thank you, Father, for the many, many people who have been, been uh, receiving these and, and, and enjoying them. And Father, we, just, we know that not everybody can make it at the time that we have here, and we understand that. And so we're doing it for them, and they do it for us by sharing back their thoughts. And I just so appreciate the work that you're doing in that regard. And Father... I pray that your will continue to be done in this North American continent, and I pray, Father, that you continue to raise up a remnant. And, uh, Father, I put that message out, who will rise up, who will stand up as a call to the new generations to, to be the one that will lead a school, to be the one that will take this archaeological 
um, record and build upon it right here on the North American continent and be, be inspired to get into that field and to break it out of the box and, and to show that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the God of this creation and you commissioned the people to be a blessing and a servant race to you, a servant people, if that's a more you know, politically correct term. But it is what it is, Father, and you commissioned them, and you told us to be about the Father's business, commissioned us to do so. So, Father, I pray that we're all doing our part, and you continue to bless each and every one of us in our daily lives and the work that we have, bless our families with, an abundance of, of those things that they need in the economic stress that's upon them and that you continue to provide for them bountifully. I pray these things, Father, in the blessed holy name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. 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 Good night, everybody. Good night, All right. Good night, Russell. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Jeremiah.